Welcome to the No Film School podcast. This is Gigi Hawkins. And today I speak with editor Kurt Lobb. Kurt has a expansive career that starts in the world of being an AC, first AC, a second AC. And then he moved into the world of editing, assistant editing. He came up through the Zap Ruder film crew. And you may know his work because he recently edited the film Blackberry, which is one of my favorite films of the last year. If you haven't seen it, I highly, highly recommend it. In fact, this is my pitch to anyone who is listening, who has any sway on awards. I think this film needs to get awards this year for your consideration from me. I have zero sway, but I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation because Kurt goes into the details of editing from soup to nuts, everything from editing around improv moments and finding a sort of golden moment, maybe even a mistake in a scene and editing backwards from there so you can capture the visceral energy of your story to editing in a more traditional way, to moving from Toronto to his small remote hometown where he could edit remotely and work with people across the world. What I loved about this conversation with Kurt is that he is the great case study of how being open and receptive and connecting with people can create opportunities. And that is so critical to having success in this field, being in the mix, putting yourself out there, saying yes to things. Kurt also talks about his process on the film, I Used to Be Funny, which is doing its festival circuit right now, starring Rachel Sennett. And at the end of the interview, we'll dig into Kurt's advice for maintaining work-life balance and happiness and peace in this world. So without further ado, here is my interview with Kurt Lobb. All right. Woodman wants to see it. We're going to Bell Atlantic tomorrow. What? what? New York City tomorrow. But, but he said... You have till 8 a.m. To, to do what? So you didn't call him a bitch, did you? Okay, okay. Okay, uh, new plan, everybody. We are all going to chip in and build this thing tonight, okay? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Kurt Lobb, welcome to the No Film School podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Can I tell you a story that I discovered this morning? Please do. Okay, so when I was a baby filmmaker, I, I was still working my corporate career. I had just started listening to the No Film School podcast. I didn't even know who Charles Hayne was. And I bought tickets to the Austin Film Festival just to go and experience it. Yep. And I saw a short film that you edited there. What? I did, Woman in the Stall. Oh, cool. Yes. That's and crazy. I remember I remember like I was just soaking in festival. I had a festival pass. I had just finished shooting my short film. I didn't know anything at all. But you had you planted a seed very early on. So that's thank you. crazy. That's amazing. Did were the directors there? Did you they meet them? were. Yeah. Cool. Dustin Madeline. Yes, that's, and that's Madeline's British, right? Yeah, she is. And she's, yeah, in the in the short. She's the actress in it. I remember that. Oh, it was yeah. such a good practice of like concise storytelling that creates tension. Oh, I remember seeing it and being like, I've never seen anything like this before, but I also haven't seen much of anything at all. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. That's so fun that you watch that. How did that, you become involved in that project? I met... Madeline, I think first, because she went to school with a lot of the people I was collaborating with at the time. And I think she saw a feature I edited called Operation Avalanche. And then based on that, she had asked if I was able to edit that short. And then I edited another short that they did. Oh, nice. Yeah. And then I would have loved to edit their feature, but then I was tied up on another project when that came around. But You're in demand. Yeah. You're that's in right. Demand. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but they're well, great. I love them. <laughs> that's that's awesome. Well, let's start where, like, where did you get your start? How did you enter the world of filmmaking and, and decide you wanted to become an editor? Yeah. In high school, I, I always said I wanted to be an artist. That was my big thing. I didn't really even knew, know what that meant. I guess like drawing or something. And in high school, I saw a show called The Brendan Leonard Show, which is a guy that lived in Chicago and made a show with his friends and family. And I thought it was really funny and really great and really charming. And I thought, Hey, I want to do that. And then I just started pursuing shooting videos, like with my friends and editing them. And definitely the editing side of things was always the most exciting for me. And, and I, I, I've enjoyed that process the most, I think. And so in high school, I did that and I made videos to show at my high school assemblies because I was on the student council. So I hijacked the assemblies and made everyone watch these videos. And, uh, and then I went off to film school in Toronto at Humber North campus and go yeah, go Humber or Hawks, I think. Oh. And yeah. And, and so I just kept, I, I always was like, oh, I want to be a director. I want to be a writer. I want to be an editor. I want to do everything. And I still kind of do, but I've always just enjoyed editing the most. And then in film school, I also found that I think on projects, people were pretty happy to let you edit if you were somewhat passionate about it, you know, and I always was. And so I got a lot of short films and stuff to edit from my friends who, who directed and did stuff like that. And then, so I just kept editing and then out of school, I also found that editing jobs were kind of the 
you know, easiest to get. Like it was either that or kind of starting, you know, at the bottom of the crew in some way, which I did do. So right out of school, I was a assistant camera operator on light, like lifestyle shows, like HGTV shows and stuff like that. Had, had no idea what I was doing, but I just went for it when I got the opportunity because I thought it would be good to make money in the industry in some way. And then it was only supposed to be a week long gig being an assistant camera op. And I headed off with the camera operator. And then he actually sent me to go be his dad's assistant camera operator for a summer. That's the Queenans. Big shout out to the Queenans. And then on that show called Summer Home, I met a producer named Ann Francis. And she's awesome. And I told her like, hey, you know what? I actually have no interest in being a camera operator. I would love to like edit. And so she got, got me my first gig doing online like web content for these reality or lifestyle shows. And, and then I got an actual editing gig on one of these shows called Barbecue Crawl. And all while I was doing that and kind of making a living doing those projects that were really fun and great to do, but not necessarily the direction I wanted to you know ultimately end at. While I was doing that, I was also working with my friends on our own kind of indie projects. And one of them was right out of film school. I assistant edited a feature called the dirties, which a producer named Matt Miller was working on. And he was a teacher at Humber. So my end of the year Humber film, he, he saw it and he complimented it. And I kind of latched onto that. I'm like, okay, this guy thinks I'm talented. He's got my back. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. So, so then I started working with him and got to know that gang and Matt Johnson directed that movie, the dirties. And at that point it was like, there was no money for it really. And it was very, very independent. And I, I worked on that movie with a couple of my friends from film school, Aaron Bell and Andy Appel. And we all kind of were becoming part of that gang a bit. And then that's, so that's all happening kind of in my free time. I'm trying to <laughs> do something that I want to do while Casually I'm also editing a feature in your free yeah, time. That's right. yeah, wow. yeah. Well, you know what? Assistant editing at that point, Assistant but, ed- but that, that was just a great kind of stepping stone with that group where at first I'm like, Hey, here I am. I'm here to help. I can assist and edit, you know? And then the dirties, we finished it and then it played at slam dance and it, it's one slam dance. And then from that, we, Matt Johnson and Matt Miller got a deal with Lionsgate to make operation avalanche. So kind of at the same time as, doing these lifestyle shows, the dirties did well. And then we got money to make like real money this time to make the next movie. And I was able to just continue on that path of making the stuff I wanted to make with my friends, you know? So then with that same group, we ended up making a show called Nirvana, the band, the show after operation avalanche. And then I, from there, I just kind of kept editing features and yeah, now I'm here. You're, you're, I've noticed a, a thread throughout is that you were able to connect with people in the mix mm. and you, and then it seemed like opportunities would sort of come to you just organically versus actively pursuing for somebody who's like sort of just getting their start out, maybe fresh out of film school. Like how it seems like you're coming from a place of just curiosity and being human, but like how, when you th- look back and reflect on that, like what were you just like, Hey, I'm Kurt. Like, let's yeah, chat. Yeah. I think it was definitely like throwing myself into, you know, out of my comfort zone, but into situations where people were already kind of doing something that I found interesting or, you know, like with those like HGTV type shows, it was just like an opportunity to make some money and meet people and network. And I kind of didn't 
not necessarily that this is the right advice, but I didn't really turn anything down for a long time. You know, it was like, even when it wasn't necessarily the, the position I wanted, I, I was like, okay, I think I can try that and do it and figure it out. And in my experience, people are pretty friendly and willing to help teach you if you just come in and you are kind and, you know, fairly easy to work with and, and want to work hard and want to learn. And so I had a lot of people, yeah, support me and listen to the things I really ultimately wanted to do and then give me chances, you know? And I think that's the key. You just got to work hard and be open to do some things you don't necessarily want to do at first, but it'll get you there eventually. Let's talk about that assistant editing work on the dirties specifically, because a lot of our listeners are probably in that phase. What was, or, or looking to get to that phase so they can learn what was like the day-to-day job when you were there? Yeah. Breaking it, breaking it down a little bit. Yeah. I think back then, like there wasn't even really great, like syncing tools, like within the editing program. So it was a lot of like manual trying to line up a cam and B cam. And often the way that that group shoots is like crazy. There's definitely no slates. It's like oh randomly <laughs> they could, yeah, they could just be having like a real conversation and then someone grabs the camera and starts shooting because in that movie and a few other projects we've done, they just go by their real names, like the characters. And so they really can just be having a conversation. And so, so much of it is very intentionally not like, you know, traditionally shot. And so a lot of it would be like watching through clips of ACAM and BCAM and be like, was this even shot at the same time? Like is the same word going to be said? So there's a ton of that. And it was a lot, yeah, a lot of syncing A and B and kind of stringing out scenes on a timeline and just organizing it as much as possible so that the editors who were Matt Johnson and Evan Morgan could just sit down and, and, and work with the footage right away, which was a pretty big mess yeah. to, to deal with. Yeah. D- did you feel like you were got, knew everyone who was ever in front of the camera because you spent so much time yes, with them? Yeah. Yeah. And that's still definitely the case. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny feeling to, to get to know that kind of one way relationship you develop with actors and then maybe one day you like meet them at the rap party or not the rap party but the premiere party you're like hey Hey, you don't know me and they're like who are you (laughs) yeah exactly exactly yeah but uh, yeah it's always fun they keep you company when you're by yourself in the dark editing suite yeah I've, i've edited i i talked in the past about how i learned how to edit over the course of the pandemic by reverse engineering i had shot a short beforehand and it did not work. Like I didn't understand story structure. This was like probably six months after I had been to the Austin Film Festival, but I had like raised money and went through the motions of directing and didn't understand anything. But like it wasn't working and I had all this footage and the pandemic hit and I reverse engineered a story from the perspective of the dog in the story. Mm -hmm. And I learned on Premiere how to edit and I was, I used to be so intimidated by it, but I like sort of had my my partner and his writing and directing partner show me the ropes and they'd come in and I like would just work the footage mm-hmm. to the point and break the story and it became a story about a dog who's been adopted and thinks he's been kidnapped sort of like homeward bound meets taken five like, minutes cool. you're in you're out and and I would sit by myself at night and like laugh at the the something that happened on set and it was like actually very I felt like I had community during this really lonely pandemic time. So like, it's a very specific thing. Yeah. Big time. Did you reshoot anything to make that short work that way? Or was it all in the footage already? 
I, so a year later, the dog, our star, came to L.A. just for the holidays. <laughs> he has family in L.A. And so I had one day to shoot and we shot, and I had basically cracked the story at that point. And I like knew we needed him on a bed, like putting his head down. I knew we needed him looking this way, looking that way. He's very treat motivated. So we, a buddy of mine who has a Ari Alexa came over and it was just the two of us and Pete the dog shooting. And and then I had like stock footage and yeah, it's like a true Frankenstein thing, but like nobody notices unless you tell them. Right. Yeah, of course. And that's always the best. And a lot of the earlier things I worked on with that group that did the dirties in Operation Avalanche and Blackberry, there's very loose scripts like on those earlier projects. So we always went in kind of knowing that was the case. It's like shoot a bunch of stuff and then try to figure it out after the fact in the edit, which can be a lot of work, but also I think can create something that feels special and that you can't quite put your finger on it when you watch it, but you know, like that, that something happened here that wasn't completely planned. And I think that's yeah. an exciting feeling as a viewer sometimes. Well, that is what, when I watched Blackberry, which I saw in theaters and then was watching it again to prepare for this interview. And I was so tired and I was just laughing. And my partner came in and sat down and he was like, didn't want to watch a movie that night. And then he sat down and then he started laughing and we just like got so much joy out of rewatching it. And the same, like, and there's this like visceralness that I, I feel like that film language probably was developed earlier on with, with this group that you were working with. But talk to me about the, the creative process of coming to that film and, and, and basically taking it into the edit, like how planned was every shot? It has such a lively feel to it. It has this like doc style feel to it that's so specific and works so well and I think captures the the chaos of business so well, which is really interesting. So talk to me about how you guys came up with that feel. Yeah, yeah. Well, also thank you very much. I'm glad that you like it. Love it. Yeah, we it really is kind of an extension of the style that we've had on past projects, but we knew it needed to be way more scripted. And that it needs to look a little bit more like accessible than kind of like a real movie compared to the past things we've made. But we always wanted to retain that same, you know, vibe from our, from our other movies. And a lot of it, a lot of it was planned, you know, like the shots and everything. It was very much storyboarded and they, they made their own like animatic beforehand with how they wanted to cover scenes and everything. But then every time they would shoot a scene, they still really would approach it quite loosely. And if something happened, they would kind of chase that down. And then something that I found in the edit, and this is also like what we did back in the day on other things is that so often I would try to use takes where things almost went wrong or, or things just didn't go as planned. And again, I think that's the feeling that you can get that it's kind of out of control and it's frantic. And you know, if the camera like gets bumped and it looks like a mistake it's because it is but it's but it gives that feeling like okay these things are real and and same with the performances and we got so lucky i think with glenn harrington and jay baruchel's and everyone really i think everyone really did an amazing job and that with this group is so unique because we've never really worked with real actors sorry matt and owen but also uh, i think matt johnson's performance really gives it an energy that also you know carries on from the past things and i, I think his vibe maybe is not something you're used to seeing in a mainstream movie like that. 
It is it, such a cohesive glue of the movie yeah. and 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 relief for what is it like a very stressful situation with characters who like it's hard to get on board with them and and I think Matt Johnson's character is this person that we can always come back to and and like and we know there's like we know there's going to be a reaction he's almost like us you know yeah that's right yeah and I think having him in the movie that character behaving the way he does is kind of like makes the style work you know yeah those are the two things that kind of anchor each other but take me through like the process of breaking down and editing one scene. So I assume you had an assistant editor on this one. Everything yes. was jam synced and ready to go and you got it and the string outs were there and it was like, wow, wow, this is amazing. But you're sitting down and, and you're preparing to edit a scene. I should have like told you a scene beforehand, but we can choose one together. One that comes to mind is the scene where they're in the diner and they're passing Glenn, Glenn Howard, right? Glenn Harton, yep. Glenn Howerton is passing over his business card with the number scratched out and his personal number. Yep, yep. So talk to me about like editing and forming that scene. Yes. Well, I was so lucky that during the shoot, they, they wanted me to be cutting as, as they were shooting, but I was on a, another project called Tales from the Territories, which is like a wrestling documentary show. Every single so, thing you've named has a great name. I'm okay. Like, wicked, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Okay. I got to be careful not to name any of the, the sillier things I've worked on. <laughs> And ruin it. Yes. But uh, I, I had a, I had Carly Williams and Manny Hussey were assembly editing the movie as I was on this other project. So I was able to watch kind of these, you know, assembly edits of the scenes as they were being shot and kind of know what I was getting into. And then by the time the shoot ended and I jumped on board for the movie, we basically had a assembly edit of the whole movie that was like over three hours long. And, and, I mean, and, I'd watch that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I'll send it to you. And, uh, it, you know, it's, pr- it's pretty rough because they only ever had like a, a day to edit some, like a scene, you know, or less. And so they really were just going in there and trying like as, as quick as they could. And so, you know, they weren't able to do some of the tricks that like we really rely on to give it that energy and like use kind of improv moments and and really work the footage but w- what they were able to do was just kind of show us you know in broad strokes like did we get it like do we have everything we need and and that was of course crazy useful for me and it's funny because i say that to people like oh there's a cut of the whole movie so you might assume like oh so what takes you a couple of weeks to finish it after that but it was you know six months after that fact and we whittled it down to just under two hours based on that three hour cut and so something like that diner scene, they had it, you know, assembled. And also I got to give a shout out to Robert Upchurch because he was a huge, huge help during the whole editing process. And you take a scene like that and my approach would be, okay, I'm going to watch the, like all the dailies and, and suddenly I'm in this really great position where instead of having to pick like the best take of something, I'm, I'm comparing it to what's already there you know, in this assembly. So that's really great to kind of have a benchmark and be like, okay, does this work better? Does that work better? And for me, my approach so often when editing a scene is I'm not, I'm kind of cutting it in order, like from the beginning of the scene and working my way through, but I'm also just trying to find like pieces that I think are really great to, to like work the whole scene around. So if halfway through the scene, something like really funny happened, then I will use that and then work my way to it. Even if it means like maybe I'm picking not the best 
take right before it for the line right before, but because I want to get, you know, the continuity to work or something like that, or, or someone to say something that will make this moment make sense. So I feel like that has been how I've worked. Yeah. Like picking kind of trying to find the little gold pieces and then propping those up and making, ma- making that work or else, you know, it's pretty hard. It's pretty intimidating to know even where to begin when you're cutting, if you don't give yourself kind of some little rules or guidelines. Yeah. Yeah. I love that because especially the sort of, again, the, the, the vibe of this, these particular filmmakers and this storytelling style is to capture, like you mentioned, that visceral sort of like in the moment mistake thing. We're in that particular scene in the diner. Was there, what was, was there a piece of gold that you remember building around? Yeah, there's a few. There's one moment I really love at the end where Doug is taking out his Ninja Turtle wallet because he's going to pay. And then he's saying something. He's like asking Jim, like, wait, how do you even know? And then he just trails off. He's like, oh, what the hell do I care? Never mind. And it was just such a real moment of like Matt Johnson in the moment being like, I don't need to keep talking. (laughs) Like the scene's over. And it's always fun when basically like, you know, reality matches what the character would be doing in the moment. And, and I think there's a lot of that that we were able to use throughout the movie. So th- there's an example, that line at the end that we for sure wanted. And, and usually it is stuff like that, especially in the first half of the movie. It's definitely often looking for the funniest moments or the funniest takes. And then of course, in the, in the second half, sometimes you've got to sacrifice those funny moments because it's just not the time for it anymore. And you yeah, got to yeah. switch tones. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The the upon the rewatch, you know, there's this moment that, and if you haven't seen Blackberry, you're crazy, and you know, go see it. This is a spoiler. In the opening scene, you know, the Jay Baruchel's character is hears a sound in the office, and uh, where he's about to do a pitch, and instead of working on his pitch or calming himself down, he fixes this this buzzing. And then that happens in the end of the film as well with his own product when they sort of took this shortcut and it's this like kind of tragic ending. But upon watching the rewatch, like that story moment in the first act, like when we're first meeting this character and learning about him, it gave me such anxiety because I remembered the tone of where we landed in the end, which is like this... Like this fall, this story of a, a descent into compromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, I'm always very excited when people say how anxious the movie might make them. Yeah, I'm happy to hear that for some people we've succeeded in that way because, you know, you watch something over and over again and sometimes it gets hard to tell. But that was definitely a big part of what we wanted to do was mesh, you know, that that feeling with comedy and with all sorts of different emotions. So you know, it's easy to watch a movie with theater and hear people laughing and be like, okay, I guess it is funny, but it's, you never really know if those other things are working until, you know, you show people. How do you, yeah. How do you like keep that perspective? Like when you're in the trenches with your team? Yeah. So often it's, you know, first off, you're just trying to make yourself entertained and something that you like, obviously. The laughing alone in the dark by yourself moment. Yeah. When you were saying earlier about, you know, editing, your stuff and that feeling you get with the footage. I definitely sometimes will like realize I'm mimicking the facial expressions that people in the footage are making. I'm all by myself and I like have a big smile giving right back, but I'm like, Oh, that's good. I think it's cause it's working, you know, but when, when we're editing the, or when I'm 
kind of editing anything, I, I do try to show, you know, the director or whoever I'm working with stuff fairly often. And, and I try to kind of go with my own instinct for sure at the gate, almost always, because I know that once the director sees it, we can always get to their version. Like if that's going to work better or if parts of the scene will work better if they're like, no, 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 this is what I was thinking. But I always try to kind of, at least at the gate, give them something they might not have expected, but that I've kind of found in the footage. And usually I think what happens is then after that, the director's like, oh, well, what about this? And what about that? And then you arrive at something that you wouldn't have if it was just the director editing their own thing, or if you only went with their kind of direction right at the gate and didn't put any of your own instincts or taste into what you're cutting, you know? That's what's so inspiring about the like post process is finding those discoveries. And this is where I think like healthy creative tension and collaboration unlocks so much because you're bouncing off each other. And it's kind of this like intangible thing when you're when you're getting to the editor cut. Are you showing how often are you engaging with the director at that phase? Is it like you're showing a couple scenes to gut check or are you kind of protecting it so you can have that fresh perspective? Yeah, it kind of is different with different directors and and how comfortable they are. With someone like Matt Johnson, I've worked with him for a long time now, so he's pretty content with letting me do my thing for a while. And and on BlackBerry, I was lucky to have other people collaborating with me that I was able to bounce things off of. Something like, I used to be funny, I, I edited that all here in Canada, and the director, Ali Penke, was in the States. And so we kind of got this routine down where at the end of the week, I would send everything I had done. And then she would watch it over the weekend and give me feedback kind of on that Monday. So I think it depends on who I'm working with, but I also, I, I sometimes I like having that space and being able to do my own thing for a while. And maybe, you know, you keep editing a few scenes ahead and then you're like, oh, actually I'm going to go back and change this thing. And I'm happy I haven't sent it yet, you know, but at the same time, it can be valuable to not go too far down a path that it turns out. The director's like, no, 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 that's not what we're doing. So I think it is good to find that balance. Check Have you ever done that where you're like, I thought I was making this <laughs> kind of movie and I guess we're uh, making a drama. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe. You know what? I I recently was on a horror movie and I, I was trying to make it as funny as possible. And then they were able to be like, no, 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 no. It can't be, it can't be too crazy. So, but, but again, I think that's good. You have to like go as full as you can so that they can then rein it back. Like it's no good to try to put that on yourself to rein yourself yeah. in before, you know, someone else can come and pick out the good stuff that we, that you can keep. This is just like a conversation full of gold gems. Oh, yeah, so. good, good. Okay. Let's, let's talk about, I used to be funny. And this is a film that is, you know, doing the festival circuit right now. So our listeners won't have seen it won't likely have seen it unless they're inner circle. And let, let so let's use this as an opportunity to talk about your process and the tools you use to create your films. I mean, first and foremost, you moved back to your hometown during the pandemic. You left the Toronto film scene and you're sending your kids to your own, the elementary school that you went to. So yes. you're working pretty remotely. Like what what is that like? Yeah. You know what? I should add a bit to my backstory, which is when I first went off to college, my cousin, Randall Lobb, is a documentary filmmaker. And so is his business partners, Mark Hussey and Isaac Fisher. And in college, they decided to do a documentary on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. 
And so I was just a young kid and I'm like, Hey, that sounds great. I'll come and set up the lights and carry gear around and whatever. And so we did that and I loved it and it was so fun. And then that doc had some success and then it allowed them to continue on that path of making pop culture documentaries. But at that point I was then in Toronto and I was doing the things I was doing. So they kept on their path of doing docs and I was in the city. And then when the pandemic hit, I was on the phone one time with Randall and he's like, what are you doing in Toronto? Like editing in your little condo building, just come back here. We got a post-production house in Godridge, Ontario, which is a few hours, two and a half hours outside of Toronto. And so I was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it looks like things are going to stay remote for the foreseeable future. So I came back home and they had already a few years back bought this old train station that, yeah, yeah. You edited an old train station. station. Yeah. It's like over a hundred years old building. And, and so they've already converted it and they had all these editing suites and everything was good to go. So then I came home I'm like, wow, this is like incredible. Like I didn't even have access to a place like this for free, at least in Toronto. So I came home and what's really cool too, is that Mark Hussey, who is the editor on all the, the, the past docs that they've made has just done like post supervision and assistant editing for me now on all these projects. And he's just like an in-house, amazing tech, like genius that I get to work with all the time and have as support. So that's, you know, something else I didn't always have in Toronto on everything I did. So it's been amazing coming home and amazing having him and having this team. And so something like I used to be funny, Mark was the assistant editor and he ended up doing VFX on it as well. And that was another situation where the, the post timeline was pretty tight. I think we had maybe like three and a half months or four months. Initially it was like three. To, and to get to, to completely yeah. sound mix everything. <clears throat> yeah. Or at least close, at least like definitely picture lock the movie, which again, I know three months maybe sounds like a lot, but it always goes by so quick. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And so on that one, Mark again, like went ahead and was able to do assembly edits on a lot of the, a lot of the scenes, which was so helpful. And we use Premiere Pro, which I love so much and is like, yeah, it's so, it's so nice to have, you know, a program like that, that, you know, in and out. And when, when there's no, like, you know, for people starting out probably can feel like it does take a long time to edit and no matter what it always will. But once you kind of completely, you know, get used to a program and you're not thinking of like the technical aspects of it or trying to figure something out like that's really the sweet spot obviously when you're editing and it's just like purely creative choices and you're not even thinking of you know what keys you're hitting but it, it, yeah we use premiere and mark did all the assembly editing and then i would go ahead do my cuts of the scene send to ali and then we had that back and forth all the way to the end of the pick lock and were you like using frame io to get it over to her yes exactly in- yep yeah nice. frame io which i think was no, I had, I had used Frame.io on Dark Side of the Ring. How about that oh. title? Do you like it? Yeah, it's I love another, it. Yeah, okay, another good. one. Yeah, it's another wrestling show. And we used Frame.io during that. So I got used to it there and I'm like, this is amazing. And then we used it on, I used to be funny as a way to yeah send cuts back and forth and share notes and whatnot. But as far as like premier shortcuts, if you want to hear any. Oh yeah, tell us your hotkeys. <sighs> tell us your, the, the things where you're like, dude, if you're not using <clears throat> doing this. this it's so funny because I don't even know the names of half the things I'm probably doing, you know? Like, yeah. I, 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 I might by, not know when you're doing, this is how I envision you. 
I feel like you're beautiful. My, not you're you're minority reporting. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's you know, right. things are but floating by exactly, my face. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So some big ones. Okay, they'll they'll seem so basic, and people are going to turn this off if they have or experienced it all. But like, just but this is an, a safe space for people who are also learning. So amazing. So this is for stay you, with us. Learning I, folks. either way. Yeah, yeah. Like just an ad edit shortcut key is huge. Obviously, so you're not hitting like. B or whatever it is to get like the blade tool and then click, you know, like that saves you a click to have an add edit button. Bam. Something that I learned late in the game was being able to like highlight a clip and then raise it up a track without having to like, you know, click and drag, which I think is usually like command up, you know, to like bounce bounce a clip up. Something, something that I love to use. I said it as E on my keyboard and I'm not sure what the actual term of it is, but it's a way of you highlight the edge of a clip and then you put your like cursor somewhere on the timeline. And then when you click it, it like drags the clip all the way over to where your, you know, your cursor is. And yeah. And so you don't have to like click the edge and like drag it over. It's just like doom, doom. And then it jumps over. I forget what that's called. But anyways, look into that if you don't do that. Already. So your, your ethos is to cut clicks, like yeah. click less. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think you would describe my style as like a timeline editor where I know something like Avid, I think it's pretty like standard that you would like pull up your clips in a viewer or whatever window they call it and and make in and out points or like make markers like within the clip, you know, and drag them down from there. And I think that kind of makes you make decisions early and you're like, okay, this is the best part. I'm going to bring it in this clip, but I like to like put everything that was shot on a timeline for like a scene. And then I go through, watch every frame, you know, when I can ideally always, but if there's not enough time, sometimes you can't, which, you know, you just have to rely kind of on, on what they say from set is like the best takes, but that usually never happens. Thankfully. Anyways, I want to like watch every frame because you never know what could be usable. Right. And then I go through, make my cuts where I'm like, this moment's really great. And then I'll bump it up to like track two. And then I keep going and that's how I make my selects. And if something's like really great, you go take it to track three or track four. And then I like always being able to go back to those selects timelines and, you know, maybe like a month from when you first cut that scene, you go back and then you watch that again. And suddenly something that, you know, wasn't the right choice back then becomes the right choice. And I think it's a good way of, you know, making decisions when you first see footage and having them easily accessible down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about how in I Used to Be Funny, like you were able to balance tone because this is a very, it's a drama with darkly comedic elements is what I'd label it. But when you were having that conversation early on, especially given that it deals with some like pretty heavy topics, like how did you first approach this, the, the way you would be thinking about Un- unfolding this story yeah that's a good question it's definitely you know what some of those shorts i did with dusty madeline i think were good practice especially the second one i did with them was pretty heavy subject matter and it's called chubby yeah but yeah thank you i didn't name it but thank you the, i think definitely it, it's going in to a project you know with respect for what for what it is that you're telling. And I think it really is about just timing of when you, when you have certain things happen and just knowing 
yeah, when is the right time for a joke or not? And when do you slowly kind of start shifting gears, you know? And a lot of that is, is already in the script, obviously. But with I Used to Be Funny, there was some experimenting. You know, there's two different timelines that are happening. And so you'll see something from the past and something from the present. And already it's clear that something had happened, you know, kind of in the middle of these two timelines that made the character very much change in the present. And they clearly have like PTSD and are very different than the version you see in the past. So already that kind of dictates a lot of the tone for each scene. But we 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 went in and also played with that and shuffled things around a, a bit. And I think it, it was kind of being aware of, yeah, when do you when do you slowly kind of start to shift gears and prepare an audience? Because you don't want to give them like too much whiplash in like jumping back and forth, you know? And I think luckily some of the present day stuff when the character is quite depressed still has some jokes sprinkled through it. So yeah. it makes it, yeah. It's so it still keeps kind of that tone pretty in a similar space throughout, you know, the first half or so of the movie. And, and even um, like a sort of like, I'm laughing, but I'm uncomfortable. Am I laughing because I'm uncomfortable or because this is funny or both, which right. I think is like a powerful emotion to evoke. Yeah, for sure. And a great way, I think, yeah, to tell a story like that, you know, a great way to get to an audience is, you know, to catch them off guard a bit, but because you're kind of enjoying it and laughing at certain things, you're like, ah, oh, should I be laughing at that? And then it, and then you, you know, kind of give them the messages at the end that I think hit, hopefully hit maybe a little harder because of what they've been through up to that point. Yeah. yeah. Now let's zoom out yep. to, to where you're at now with your life and your career. And I think one thing we like to talk about on the podcast is setting yourself up for success in the long run as an editor, as a filmmaker. What are things that you're doing every day to continue to like grow and make sure that you're like feeling good physically, emotionally? Like what are what is the the Kurt Lobb way of life that Ooh. editors and folks should be taking into <sighs> into there? Yeah. You know what? I think something that I'm very grateful to have is a family, you know, I got three kids with my wife and that in a really great way gives me something that I want to do. That's not work. And I think when you work in this industry, you probably are doing it cause you really love it. And so sometimes if you could, and I feel like I did this for a few years, that's all you do. And that's all you really want to do. But it's so nice when you got a really great reason to do something else. And I think having that like work life balance is pretty valuable and always, you know, makes it so that when I am working, I'm like happy to be there and going hard and enjoying it and never like losing my love for it. Mm -hmm. And as far as kind of staying like up to date with, you know, like editing programs or just filmmaking, I think like just by necessity often, like you get thrown into a new project and there's new challenges and you just kind of are forced to learn new things. I know that's what happened with me with like kind of a VFX workflow when we made Operation Avalanche that was like super heavy VFX. And I was like, well, I guess I just got to kind of learn this now. And and I worked with the super talented guy named Tristan Zraffa who taught me so much. And I, I would say that's like the best way to keep learning for sure is just keep doing things like jumping into a project and figuring it out as you go, because you just have to, you know, Yeah. and, and just staying busy. And I, I suppose I still 
say yes to a lot of things in the same way that I did, you know, and, and, and yeah, and also trying to take on new challenges and, and going out of your comfort zone and don't, you know, it's good to like have a niche and get really good at one thing or one genre, but I think it's also super valuable to stretch yourself and yeah, explore other types of movies. Cool. And what is the dream movie that you'd want to edit? You're wearing a Jurassic Park shirt right now. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Spielberg, Spielberg. Yeah, that probably is definitely up there. Or you know what? A Scream movie. Oh. I would love to If do I that. directed a Scream movie, will you edit it? Please, yes, 100%. Please do that, because I would love to. I love Scream. I love whodunits. I probably, yeah, I love the original Scream. It's a masterpiece. So good. So but, good. And yeah. so, so well done, like structurally. I know. It's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. I love it. And I would say the more recent Screams, I, I'm like, the stuff that they can win me over in like the easiest ways. It's just got to be like the most simple little thing. It's like, oh, it's spoiler, spoiler. There's two ghost face on screen and stabbing the guy at the same time. Wow. I've never seen that in a screen. Yeah, and then yeah. I just get one over. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I think I feel that way about Final Destination. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, and, and there's a new one coming out, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nonstop. They love it's, those. There, I feel like there's something where I'm like, oh, this is like clever. They're playing within this world. There's this self-awareness that's very, I, I mean, there's Scream has always been self-referential in a way that is so satisfying. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I, okay, you're, you're the one I'll call if I get a scream direct movie. Scream. Please do. I would scream love that. Scream 15. Scream. Yeah, exactly. I really wonder how long those will go until they're like, okay, let's cool it again and then bring it back. It's going to be interesting i think there are there are serials like there the the the, i hope that it continues to be a franchise that reinvents itself and finds the fun and lets people try things and be crazy and like play it does feel like a because it's horror because it has this franchise element i think it lets people play in a way that's like you know you can't always do yeah for sure it's the best Oh, well, it was so wonderful to speak with you, Kurt. Do you, you have any too. other, anything else you want to say while we still yeah, got you? you know but what? you should come back in the future. Please? Yeah, for sure. I'd love to. You know what? I should give a shout out to that I skipped in my, again, in my big, long origin story, which is in high school, when I first did decide that I wanted to be a filmmaker, there was a very special class called Digital Media Studies. And it was the only one that was like, it was like a select group of students. You had to like apply to be in it. And then the teacher would decide if you're going to be in it or not. And it was there. Did you get and in? I got in. Imagine if I'm like, and I didn't get in. And I didn't and get then in. I was and so mad. I was going to show it. Yeah, and I wanted to make sure I, yeah, tell this guy F you. No, he, he let me in. And then that's where I first learned like how to edit and everything. And it was a great kind of, you know, I felt like I had a good early ex- experience at that time. And then, so when I went into film school, I kind of felt like I had just a bit more practice than, than some people, especially like in editing. And it was such a great head start. But, but I think, you know, kids these days, they're editing stuff on their phone yeah. when they're 10. So, yeah. so uh, yeah, I, I wonder what that'd be like now, if you're like, Oh, I want to be an editor and I already do all this. Like, it's crazy to think of that. But anyway, yeah. back then, Digital Media Studies at CHSS was the place to be if you wanted to be in the CHSS. Yes. <laughs> Wait, not Hawks, but that oh, I can't even say what that was. It's since been changed. The mascot that it was, uh, I, will, I will not say it. They're the Phoenix now. 
The Phoenix, you and your birds. Your birds yeah, exactly. Cool. Yeah, yeah, they- Do, yeah, I think I'm so glad you shouted out those early teachers. I mean, they don't get enough credit at all, but the teachers who inspire creativity in young people is like game changing, game changing. Yeah. I still am in touch with my high school acting teacher who saw creativity in me when I didn't for decades. Yeah. And that, yeah. Yeah. It means so much. And, and I was very fortunate to have a very supportive family, parents and yeah, lots of people who, even though I was a small town boy, were like, Hey, yeah, you could do that. Dream that, big. That, that, yeah. That can happen. I'm like, okay, I'll try. And, I yeah. love that. Well, please come back on the podcast and yes. join us and after the next film and or maybe when we do Scream 15. Yeah, yeah. we'll be together a lot then. We'll be together a lot. We'll do yeah. like a constant podcast check-in. <laughs> exactly. It was truly such a pleasure. Thank you so much, Kurt. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Kurt, for joining us on the podcast today and for taking us through your journey, your story, and your process. I was so impressed to learn about Kurt's ability to flex into different working styles, into different types of films, into different formats, documentary, TV, film, all coming from a place of curiosity. As Kurt was describing, being okay with learning as you're going and knowing that there's always more to learn seems like one of the things that we should always be reminding ourselves as we work as filmmakers. Thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. You can get more editing and filmmaking and all things No Film School on nofilmschool.com. You can follow us on social media at No Film School, and you can also like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. Let us know what you thought of this episode and also what else you want to hear more of. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.